Hello there and welcome to the Racing Home podcast brought to you by Women in Racing and Simply Racing with support from the Racing Foundation and Kindred Group. I'm Naomi Meller, an equine vet and podcast producer and in this podcast we're talking about work and family. It's challenging being a parent, whoever you are and whatever you do. And it's particularly challenging being a parent when you work in horse racing. It's 24-7, 365 days a year. So how can we best help people manage being both great parents and valued members of the racing family? Following the Racing Home Research Project, in this podcast we'll be exploring ideas around parenthood and career progression and how to do things differently. I'll be talking to trainers, jockeys, physiotherapists and a host of the sport's experts and decision makers about their experiences, their stories and how together we can shape a positive future for all families in horse racing. We've been very fortunate with Racing Home to have support from numerous folk across the industry and we're welcoming two of them to the podcast today with very different roles in racing, it must be said. We were going to call this episode Saints and Sinners, but we didn't. I think From Grassroots to the Boardroom fits a little better. A huge thank you to both my guests today for everything they're doing in support of racing's workforce and family life. It is much appreciated. Simon Bailey is the national chaplain to horse racing. He lives with his family in Newmarket and is on the ground there daily, supporting those who work in racing and people who have previously. Simon is the listening ear, a place to turn in times of need and someone with great knowledge of who can help you, even if he can't. He's also one of the new team of grassroots ambassadors we've got here at Racing Home. Ed Nicholson is pretty senior at Kindred, the parent company of Unibet. He's the head of racing communications and sponsorship, in case you're interested. You'll hear that Ed's interest in equality in the sport goes back a long way, though, when he wrote a research piece back in the early 90s whilst at university. I started by asking them both how their entry into racing came about. For me, I probably got interested in racing because my dad used to have a bet every weekend. We lived in the East End of London, but my mum was born and lived in Market Raisin, so my life was living in Hackney up to the age of eight, um, but every holiday is going up to market race and spending time with my mum's mum and dad, and that meant going to the races. So I kind of got the side of it from the racing on TV on Red Rum would be the horse that I followed back in 1973, <laughs> 74. Um, and then going to market race and races and seeing it actually live and up close and that brought me the love of the horse. So I then went back to Hackney from the holidays and wanted to learn how to ride and wanted to be a jockey. So I would go down to Lee Valley Riding School and used to ride little ponies and with the knowledge that I was going to be a great jockey one day. And obviously I grew and grew and grew. You can't see on this podcast, but I'm six foot tall and about 15 and a half stone. So <laughs> that was uh, that was about as far as it went. But um, yeah, I, I kind of loved horses and horse racing and show jumping uh, through through that in fact at Hackney a nice story was when my mum took me to the local doctor surgery when you're a little child obviously there's loads of toys to keep your mind off being in the doctors if you're a little child and there was a rocking horse and um, apparently I was transfixed just waiting to get on this rocking horse but a, a little girl was on it finally my moment was there it was free and I got on and I started riding the finish to the 73 Cheltenham Gold Cup with a horse called the Dickler. Obviously I heard my dad shout these words and I said, come on the Dickler. 
and um, and uh, my mum was 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 so annoyed and worried that she we never we never went back to that doctor surgery ever again. So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I kind of loved horses and horse racing for a long time. I feel like for your doctors to have a rocking horse, that's a pretty good doctor's, to be fair. Like, if you've got that in the waiting room, your doctor's doing a good job on entertaining the kids, aren't they? Yeah, I think there's a few few dolls and teddy bears, but I didn't want those. <laughs> Book's not your forte, Ed, at that age. And how about you, Simon? That's a great story, Ed. I wish I could it compete with It is a good story. It's a good one. I, I do wish I could compete, but I can't. Um, <laughs> I guess if you ever come into these things by chance... Um, I was pastoring Kilburn Evangelical Church um, and NW6 in 2014, and my predecessor, the guy who done the horse racing chaplaincy um, for about 13 or 14 years before me, he was leaving the post in August of that year, and I was contacted by Sports Chaplaincy UK to see if I'd be interested. They were looking for somebody to do this, and so I think with my background. And, and a love of all sports. And I had an Uncle Billy used to bet every day as well. So he was my kind of inroad to the sport, you know, and a love of sport and Bill's love of horse racing industry. From that, I took an interest. But I think where, where I can trump head is I'm six foot three and about 16 and a half stone. And so I think it's always in your mind that, that you're never going to be able to play a part, you know, in this kind of sport. Too big too heavy so you kind of put these things to one side don't you but then when when the opportunity came we made the transition we left Kilburn in northwest London and we've been in Newmarket ever since the rest they say is history as they say that's quite a big move for your family as well it's they're not totally similar places let's put it that way um, <laughs> Kilburn at Newmarket are Absolutely. quite far apart I, I, and I think with church life as well it isn't the first move we made so my two girls Sarah and Laura um, they've kind of grown up on change and adventure so it was just the next step in a long line of adventure <laughs> and for people who aren't familiar um and i would classify myself amongst this number we know what a priest who is a, affiliated with the church does but what is the role of the racing chaplain and being a chaplain in sport simon what does that actually entail like what does your day-to-day -day look like if people are wondering about that i think predominantly my role is a pastoral care one in and around the, the yards and the studs just having a chat being maybe the first port of call to any member of staff in the industry that has issues, and we all have issues from time to time, um, and I'm just there to listen and I guess offer a bit of gu guidance if if you know I need to do that. And um, I think we all, at some point, you know, in our lives, need to know that someone cares, and hopefully, I'm just one of those, you know, in the industry that cares. Can't really offer many advice on the sport, but what I can hopefully offer some kind of life kind of advice along the way. And unfortunately as well in the sport, there is the illnesses. Being around Newmarket, new a lot of the retired staff tend to stay in the area as well. So I quite often say my role is births, deaths, and all the issues that go on in between. Well, births we're going to come to, because obviously family life is sort of the centre of racing home, and there's a lot to talk about with that. But, Ed, I wanted to backtrack on your talk about careers. Um, I was 
fascinated to read and hear that you were doing work on gender diversity in horse racing back in 1991, which is a very long time ago now. As an undergrad, when you were doing politics at university, what was it that led you down that route because if I may say so perhaps in 1991 the landscape was a bit different and that you know things were not talked about quite as openly as they are now the whole conversation around gender diversity and EDI in general in the workplace just was just not where it is so what set you off on that path? I did politics and sociology degree at Loughborough and I set up the horse racing club at Loughborough University called the, the Turf Society. So Did you? Wow. Yeah, I was involved in racing from, you know, I used to write magazines from the age of eight, nine, ten, and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So when I went to Loughborough, I, I, I went there to do politics and sociology, and I also played sport, but I, I kind of wanted to, wanted to get involved in racing. So, yeah, we set up the Turf Society, and, and my mum and dad were, you know, were very political. First time I voted, I voted for my mum in the council election. My dad stood for Parliament in 1974 against Norman Tebbit, and my grandmother was mayor of Wrexham, and and kind of, I had an interest in politics, and and my mum was, you know, as, as you can expect, you know, she stood for the local council, she, she was, you know, very important figure, but my grandmother even more so, being being, you know, a mayor back in the day, um, and gave my dad a lot of positivity in in his political aspirations, so. We were, you know, we kind of talked about it around the dinner table and equality was something we always discussed. So I was fascinated in equality and inequality um, and sociology within the UK. And I was always fascinated about the differences between men and women, boys and girls growing up. So once I studied the sociology part of the degree, that was an area that really interested me. And I kind of was interested because of my love of racing to, to see that women weren't fairly represented in that sport or the industry and I wanted to know why and and it also gave me an opportunity to do something I really wanted to do which was to get more involved in racing at university so I could then go and talk to John McCruick I'd go and then talk to the journalists the bookmakers the jockeys the before the BHA it was a BHB the British Horse Racing Board um, and just discuss all these things with them um, and it just gave me you know, it gave me an interest and a love and a, and a, and a real need to do it so those are probably the reasons and while going through it I kind of found some fascinating characters and some stats and information and you know there were books and articles out there that were written by 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 people and women and you know just it just it kind of fueled my thirst for knowledge even more to understand that you know women couldn't own horses until 1960s they didn't ride a winner till 73 you know the, the female trainers that we know now that run you know basically win all the big races didn't exist in the in the 80s uh, you couldn't become a steward of the jockey club if you're a woman so and these were fairly you know they, these were only years before about 10 years 15 years before and i, I just I, I i found it fascinating so they, those were the reasons why i looked at it and the more the more i looked into it and i looked at the normal aspects of gender inequality not just horse racing but you know inequality around societies as well it made me think more and more about it and at the time, I didn't really think it was before his time. I, I thought it was of his time. And I think that just goes to show that how long equality, inequality in society and, and within racing has been has been going on because we're still talking about it now. But I'm really interested to know what you found attitudes to be when you were doing your research, because when you were talking to people, you mentioned John McCrory there, but you were obviously involved with quite a lot of people in the industry. 
what sort of conversations were you having Ed, at the time and what did you feel like people's responses and their attitudes were at that stage because we you know we talk a lot about attitudes within the industry as part of the racing home research but you've got such long experience of that and sort of I guess the original footings or foundings or whatever it is from you know 30 years ago it's amazing yeah well I mean for the terms of jockeys not many trainers wanted to put female jockeys on on their horses and you had to be a relation or or you had to be exceptional like Alex Greaves was around at the time but there were only three or four in America there were Julie Crone was was an exceptional jockey full stop um so you know, Julie Crone was a was an exceptional jockey at that time. Um, so I, I'd like reading about her records. But in the UK, there weren't that many. Alice Cruz, I think, if memory serves me right, was the first winner of a Group One race. Trainers, there weren't that many. Going back and finding out that jockeys, you know, didn't have licenses, weren't allowed to ride in races until you know fairly late later on in the seventies. So the attitudes were what you would expect. In my dissertation, there's a quote from. A prominent jockey who I won't name, but who said that women shouldn't be allowed to ride in races, and he's a, he's a very prominent uh, name uh, that you would know. There were lots of people that thought they got in the way of the of the, jo- of the male jockeys, you know, of the jockeys. One bookmaker though did actually say to me that punters actually didn't mind because of the prejudice that existed back then. If a horse was jocked up to be ridden by a lady jockey, then the, the odds on those horses would be larger because the public wouldn't wouldn't want to back those horses so the bookmakers could offer bigger bigger odds on those horses and reduce the odds on the others so one or two one bookmaker especially that I, I actually spoke at Newmarket Racecourse um, actually said that there were times when horses to be ridden by female jockeys would would be bigger odds than they should be because nobody wanted to back them because they only wanted to back the the, the jockeys that were the horses to, that were going to be ridden by male jockeys. Um, and talking about attitudes on the ground, we're going to come on to things at the grassroots level shortly, Simon. But what do you hear talking about yards and studs and being around? You know, you're very much in the thick of it on the ground in Newmarket. Just yeah. talking about the Racing Home Project over the last sort of four or five years, we've obviously had a lot of input from people and the focus groups and stuff have provided some really incredible insights and some quite troubling ones from time to time. <laughs> but what do you, what's your take on what you hear on the ground? I know you said you do births, deaths and everything in between, but you obviously hear a lot, see a lot, and without breaking any confidences or saying anything that you shouldn't. I was just wondering what your kind of general impression is of where we're at with all of this from your perspective on the ground. Yeah, I think there's only one theme, and quite simply the one theme that if you to go in any yards, every trainer would tell me and they've done so I think during my nine and a half years is they're all one two or three staff short of where they want to be from workforce point of view and um, and that's a concerning thing and then from that you start to ask the whys why can't we retain the staff being somebody that has been to the British Racing School today and I'm normally there once twice a week speaking to the young folk that are on the courses um, whose dream it is, you know, to enter the sport and to do the best in it and to stay in it for most of them. Why, from their point of view, and why from the ground up can't we, can't we, why don't we keep the staff that the racing schools send into the sport? Um, so that's a big issue. Somewhere along the line, um, we can't keep staff. And I think, the great thing about the Racing Home project is somebody has seen this and has come up with, you know, a certain answer. 
and I thought it was a good idea. So, you know, it's a great idea and well done to that team um, that want to go and do something about this. And then down the line, through the passions of some folk that I spoke to, the question then becomes, if I think it's such a great idea, why don't I do something about it as well? And, and hence the fact I think that I'm on the podcast, if we can in some way, shape and form, just kind of tweak those things and keep a few more staff, then it's a great idea and, and I'm all in. So how do you see that happening from a practical perspective? Because I know there's no kind of silver bullet answers to any of this, but it's the small steps that make the big changes eventually. And actually, if we all take the small steps all together, then it's it becomes a big leap for everybody. But yeah, it's really interesting to see how you, you see that playing out in practice and any changes that you've seen. I mean, nine years is a long time, Simon, for you to have been chaplain as well. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk positives. Like, what have you? What good things have you seen? I've seen certain trainers buck this trend of horse racing says that everybody has to start work at, at I don't know five five thirty a.m. six a.m. They have to do this and then they have to go home at eleven o'clock or eleven thirty. And the ones um, that have kind of embraced, for instance, the young mums who are coming back into the industry that probably through childcare can't drop their young ones off to the nursery until eight o'clock can't be in work until 8 30 um maybe can't do the 3 p.m slot afterwards um they've they've kind of tweaked the hours of work to suit them and again that's really makes sense to me i know every yard can't do it and i know there's got to be certain numbers of staff that have to be in at earlier times but for the want of just one, two or three staff, as I say, to come in at some point during the day and maybe take up that slack, um, that just seems a great idea. And and it starts slowly and maybe it does start with um, one yard, two, two yards that do this. And maybe in a year or two's time, they will jump on board, say what a great idea it's been. Maybe others will then start to get on board to listen a bit more. We can't change everything overnight, can we? Sport and the wheels of the horse racing industry at, at times tend to seem to grind. Um, but I, I think from my job, um, I see some great things, you know, on the ground. Um, and we should shout about those a little bit more. And, and I'm kind of here to shout about this. Definitely. It's really good. And um, in terms of the grassroots ambassadorship program, you mentioned Dom there, who has been, as well as Dina and Dana, who have been tireless working on this project. But Dom has been a real yep. grassroots champion from the beginning. Yep. And uh, she has been phenomenal at getting into yards and speaking to people about their needs, their concerns you know their hopes and their dreams and and everything else in between and we now as a result um have got a team of grassroots ambassadors who i know you met for the first time last week simon can you explain to people what that role is going to involve for you and the rest of the team and, and what you're going to be doing with all of that because i think it's really important that we as you said shout about it and tell people how we're going to help them it's first of all is the relationships that we built on the odd and like you say with dom she's uh, lived this you know all her life she's lived this she's gone through some of the issues um left she's got two sons and she's had the fight and maybe not the help you know in the past and so that's really one of the reasons why i'm on board the passion that she showed in the film 
I think that came out for Racing Home, just what a great effort and what it takes. And so from that, I think our first job is to get on the yards, to speak with trainers or their staff, both, and to try and maybe answer any feedback that they have, the scepticism that they have. And we can do this through all kinds of things. We can show, show them the films, we can show them the, the analysis that has been done um, and I think we can we we can kind of pass that hope on that those that have left the sport, there's more of them I think that want to come back into the sport than than they're they're aware of, and and if we can enable them to do so, I think the first port of call is we could just have that trip effect to say this won't go away. You, you know, it's a great option. I know there are other options, but but this really is a great op you know option. Um, to build your workforce again. It is, it really is. I mean, just speaking from personal experience, one of my favourite people that I've worked with returned to racing, having been away for 10 years and having three kids. And her partner works in racing as well. So the two of them together both had quite demanding hours and she was the one that stepped away with after they'd had the kids. But on returning, her value is so high because she's got experience she's got skills she's got so much to offer once you kind of bring them back into the fold whatever industry you're in and racing is not unique you know you realize then when you've been around people who are returning to the workforce with years of experience but perhaps a relatively long gap that they do have tons to offer you and and it's just a question of kind of nurturing it and teasing it out and saying you can do this there is a space for you and we want you as much as anything else ed you're nodding along if you've obviously got experience of that if you had quite a lot of people returning after periods yeah well i mean i've worked in the um the betting industry since 1993 and you know betting and racing similar in terms of plenty of um women do leave to to have children and obviously bring bring them up in the early the early years but then there's a need to get them back. I mean, we've seen how difficult it is to get people back into the workforce that are experienced and have the qualities and the ability to, to, to do these jobs. And that's why Racing Home was so was so good to get involved with. You know, there was definitely a, a, a need to get information across to people so they could they could help themselves by getting back into the... And also understanding, as we just said, they are well qualified. They, they, you know, for an employer, it's much better and cheaper in the long run to get someone to come back that's already gone through the process of understanding and learning many occasions they just need to refresh those um, those qualities and then they can get straight back on and, and and deliver for let's face it for the industry or for the for the company or for the individual or for the trainer or for for whoever so it, it makes sense and you know we, we I mean I saw this in the early years in the 1990s when plenty of women would just they wouldn't return you know they would have children and that was it I think now nowadays most people in that, in that situation um, will will seek to want to get back into the workforce as quickly as possible and, and Racing Home is a great portal a one-stop shop to give information on everything for employees employers and also husbands or you know people that but people that are maybe having the different roles in in, in societies and families now. So, you know, there's a lots of information to be gained. And having spoken to a lot of people when we launched it at Kempton, in, um, the Racing Home Portal, I, I spoke to a lot of people that were there. It was great to see so many people there. You know, plenty of people said that they didn't know where to go. It, you know, there were so many different aspects they needed to get information about. And what the Racing Home Portal did, it, it gave it to them in one go. And I think over the last year and a half, what Women in Racing and the Racing Home Portal 
are trying to do is to try to get it across to people that there is a one-stop shop and this is where you need to go and you'll get all the hopefully answers and if not all the answers then they'll give you a, an area to go on to to get the, your further answers further questions answered so yeah it is something that i think racing and and and, and the betting industry certainly have, have needed it over the years something like this so yeah there is quite a lot we do and as you say a lot of people don't get it a lot of people don't understand it well i was just about to say that because i was my literally my next point was about to be it requires a bit of out of the box thinking doesn't it because it's not your average average quote unquote sponsorship of a sporting event is it in terms of you know naming a race or having some activations on course or whatever you know but i think i think it has developed across the industry i know that other the bookmakers are doing similar great stuff um, in the community now, especially around mental health. Um, I would, you know, we were, I think we we pioneered the way in many ways, but, and it was part of our new form of sponsorship strategy, which was to get involved, not just in uh, race titles. It was to, it was to try to put something back in. And, and that was all part of what we, you know, what we wanted to do with the communities around, not just racing, but around the sports sponsorship we've done in football and and other areas but if you're a if you're a, if you're just a punter who wants to know who's the best price is is it unibet or labbrooks you, 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 it, it's quite difficult to explain that that's the reason why we do it and there are still lots of regulations and legislation that we had to adhere to and we have to make sure quite rightly that we that we that we deliver on so yeah it's not it's not easy it's not as easy to understand if if you, if you, if you don't want to understand but at the end of the day it, it, it's something that you know we have we have a passion about we, we we care we want to we want to put something back into the communities and it makes it makes complete business sense if you actually were interested in understanding it it's actually putting something back into grassroots and putting something back into the communities and the areas that these communities go um, and if people do go to the race courses and they see Unibet and it's, it all links around the brand um, and they see it and their understanding of what the brand means to them. Not all people are going to see this as, as a positive positive thing to do, which it obviously, you know, I'd say it is. It, it is positive. We're putting resource and, and, and funds behind behind projects that, that need, uh, that we could put elsewhere. Um, but, you know, as I say, Kindred, especially with women in racing uh, uh, and, and, and gender equality full stop around the group, it's something we hold quite close to our heart. So that's why we've got involved yeah. in it. You mentioned about the quiet spaces and encouraging people with hidden disabilities and, and sensory needs to come racing. But actually bringing, bringing your kids to the races, if it's particularly if it's a busy day, can be quite an overwhelming experience. And bringing kids to yards can be quite overwhelming. And Simon, you, you mentioned the National Horse Racing Museum earlier when we were chatting and it's kind of even just taking children to meet a horse, we think of that as quite a natural thing to do and people who've been around horses forever and ever just associate your kids meeting a horse being, to be a, a really normal thing. But actually encouraging people to bring their family is quite a big deal, isn't it? It is, yeah. And and I think it's the same in all all walks of life. Um, we, we can't, you know, assume things now, can we? We can't, you know, assume that the industry's next uh, fun fun base is going to be the same as the ones that have been. We need um, to make the sport sport that we want it to be, and we've talked about the inclusion, and we just need to do that. We we can't just assume that everybody who walks on a race course knows exactly what's going on. Knows, you know, a bit like knows exactly how to have a bet. Maybe I'm I'm not the best person to be talking about, you know tips and having a bet here but um but that's not just all it is there's other parts of the course that are part of the course experience and and where are they allowed why aren't they allowed in certain areas all of these kind of things we 
we just assume that everybody will know. Um, odds, for instance, how much you're going to win back if your horse comes in, especially if you've had an each way bet. All these kind of things. And I guess said I've got to thank you, Ike. I I became a men- mental health first aid instructor about five or six years ago. So part of my remit is to run the racing welfare sponsored mental health first aid courses the two day and the half day courses and again you know it's a bit like what we've been talking about we've got to start somewhere to understand that there are staff in the industry as well that maybe are that there there are some things that are going through their heads and that they don't want to tell their boss that they don't want to tell their best mates um, and they don't know where to turn and we've started to become part of that and again it's a bit of a slow burn and we hope we come to some point where we tilt and then everybody wants to do it and um, we're just a few years down the line and it's the same for racing home I think just a few years down the line let's just hope that everybody buys into the concept Do you see Simon that it's the same people repeatedly taking the positive actions around things like mental health and parenthood and people's you know rights and responsibilities and things like that or is it some yards are good at some things and some employers are good at other things how do you see that and what do you see the sort of future lie of the land as being in terms of as we move forward who's gonna who's gonna thrive and who isn't let's put it that way <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> it's a great question and i think again if we're going back to assuming things what's said to me quite a lot is i guess the trainers who are young know more about this and are more keen to help their staff out. I, I don't see that as being the case. It's a bit of a split. But just going back to mums who've been out of, of, of the sport for a time and want to get back in, what, what I do see on yards is the staff that call me first where maybe there's something going on in their yard and they want somebody to come and have a chat with a member of staff are mums that have been out of the industry and come back. So... It's those staff, maybe they work in the office now, had, had girls, you know, are great for that. Once you've become a mum, you maybe return to work with a little bit more of a life experience, you know, of having young ones, and they tend to want to look after the young staff on the yard a little bit more. So I, I, I see those calls first and foremost, and it's happening, and we'd like to, to you know, to continue to happen, and we we just like to raise this and to ramp it up a little bit and to get it ha- happening more. Rearing children definitely gives you loads of skills, insights, and knowledge, and being able to see things in three hundred and sixty degrees, I think, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to ask you as well what you've seen in terms of women returning to your teams over the years, because you're a senior person in the industry. What additional um, skills and and qualities have you seen in returning if we're talking about returning mums in particular what do you think they bring to the table well i don't know if they bring anything exceptionally different from when they left the organization i think what they do is they bring opportunities for employers to be not starting new but starting with somebody who's already gone through the process of i mean if we're talking really in terms of, of a corporate business we've already spent or a or a company's already spent a great deal of resource on that individual um, in terms of bringing them up to a level, and then uh, and then they come back, and there might be refresher courses, but it's much easier to get someone back onto the scene in terms of their experience and, and attitude than they're starting with somebody you you, you don't know. I, I just think it's the ability to for an employer to know that who who's coming back and in a, in a in a team 
um, that you can then develop and, and, and improve and go off and achieve your objectives. It's amazing. It's really good. And I'm conscious of both of your times, but I was going to just ask you before we went, is there anything that either of you had as uh, pressing things you wanted to say as part of this or like overall takeaways and bits and pieces? Ed, you first. I mean, just going back to, we, we touched on, you know, why why we do it, why Kindred do it. And it, we, it, was, a, it was a form of sports sponsorship that we're developing across all areas. I think in general, society is more, it's trying more with sustainability um, areas than ever before. So I think society and my industry, for, for the good, there are more people taking part and listening um, and wanting to talk about these areas. And, and women in racing is just one area of that, but a very important area, obviously, to this podcast. So I think that's only good for society. And I think it's good for, for us as a, as, a, as a sector to develop in, in, in the 21st century. So it is an important aspect to, to a corporate organisation to show it's not just to show the external people out, but also internal. So people that will join the company and, and I, I'm thinking of another one, and shareholders. I mean, you won't believe how much, how important it is with shareholders to show you have a sustainability strategy. Um, and obviously women in racing and gender equality is one, is one aspect of that. I mean, now plenty of people come into the workforce wanting to decide upon their best way to enter the workforce. And, and you know, many people are asking about what does your company think about sustainability? So all these things are, are, are reasons why you should do it from a corporate point of view. But also, it's good to do it as well, isn't it? I mean, it's good to put something back into society, uh, especially within areas that you are, you know, are interested in or you have a particular uh, association with. Mm. All these things are linked together as well. You know, we talk about new mothers and mental health is a really big area. And actually now, I think having open conversations about mental health, as you've mentioned a couple of times there, both of you, is is really positive because actually the more we discuss the correlation between different sectors, whether that's parenthood, mental health, other aspects of work, everything overlaps, doesn't it? And actually there's so much to do and having support out there for everybody is just really vital. Simon... How about you? I, I wrote down on my pad with all my questions, um, hope, perspective, and a good listening ear as part of that. And I, I wondered if you feel hopeful about the future and, and what your take on add, anything to add is. Yeah, I've, I'm always hopeful, Naomi, always. If we're not <laughs> Me too, hopeful, I live in we, hope. <laughs> yeah, there's a dark, dark corner in everybody's house, isn't there, where we could all just sit and think, you know, it's absolutely pointless. Why are we trying anything? I think Ed's, Ed's kind of coined a phrase with what he was he was saying just in his last answer, and he Ed you said for for the good, and I think um, we've got a sport. We're in an industry where every front page news headline seems to be bad news, and somebody you know on the outside wants to throw in another anger grenade, wants to knock it, and I think if if I'm here for anything, um, if there's any trainers listening, I I can't come up with an idea to make your horses win more but what I can do is is help to make your staff achieve the things that maybe um they don't think they can um and there's, a, there's you know a lot to be said for getting alongside staff maybe for being their first port of call and if I am that maybe finding other organizations that we can pass them on to if I'm not the right person for the good of their health because if staff are healthy they're in work more often. It might just solve, you know, a few employment issues. Their horses might be cared for more. Their horses might win a little bit more. 
if if it's down to staff coming first, let's try and get more staff into the industry. And when they're here, let's try and make it easier for them, you know, to stay in it and to come back for the good of all our health. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. We all need to stick together. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow the podcast to receive all new episodes as they land. It would really help us if you could rate the podcast and leave a review telling us what you'd like to hear about. This is a resource for you and everyone in the industry, and we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. So see you then.